So that was a great journey. I can't remember the mileage, but it was uh, probably as far as you could go. We had, didn't have any big problems on this trip. A few, a few bits of minor hassle, but nothing at all serious. Uh, I think we looked after ourselves and, and didn't really understand risks so well back then, but it worked out fine. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Enby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. Obviously, I've not been doing much since my last episode. That said, I am moving quite a bit more free than I was. Hmm, bit inconvenient, though, then last Friday, I had a text message from my doctor going, can you call a surgery to arrange an appointment? Ominous. Apparently, my x-rays have come back. Not that I know whether it makes any difference or not at the moment, because, you know, I'm walking slowly and slightly limply, but I am certainly walking better than I was, and I'm using my stick more for psychological rather than... Actual physical reasons. Plus, I look cool with a big stick. People have suggested I put kind of knob on the top and look like a kind of like a wizard or something from certain fantasy literature. I'm sure I could rock that look. So, who knows what that x-ray is going to bring. Maybe they've found some weird portal to another dimension in my ankle. Somehow, I suspect not. Don't get me wrong, I'm still nowhere near in a position to do a parkrun, but I'm certainly a lot more mobile than I was. The days of me zooming round my apartment on an office chair are, I think, in the past now, which, if nothing else, is good for my carpets. So what updates do I have since my last episode? Well, I was interviewed for another podcast back in January, and that episode has now gone live. It was for the Distance Hiker podcast. I say was, it has since changed its name to Humans of the Trail. And I'm 80% sure that was partly because of me. It was a podcast specifically about hiking, but I seem to have broken it and turned it into a more of a kind of an outdoorsy vibe pod where the people, rather than the trails, take the centre stage. Anyway, link in show notes, as per usual. We didn't even get to talk about everything we'd planned to do, so I'll be on it again later in the year, but not until I get back from my spring trips, because the reason why I'm going is partly relevant to what I'm going to talk about. You'll find out, but not yet. Perhaps surprisingly, and it's certainly a surprise to me, I have a vague plan for podcast episodes looking ahead to the end of the year and beyond, in that I've written down a series of topics I want to discuss and do podcasts about, and at the rate of one every two weeks, this list gets me to the end of the... probably... actually not the end, maybe sort of like week two of January 2024. Obviously, I've no faith that I'll actually manage it, but hey, this is more planning than I've ever done before for this podcast... And as you know, part of my issue has been sometimes I'm going, ah, I'm going to need to do a podcast this week. What can I talk about that's easy? Hopefully, it'll mean I'll actually also stick to releasing them on Thursday mornings. Meh. At the time of writing this podcast, me and my VA are still non-nearer in working out how to replace our Twitter Spaces conversations. We are probably going to use YouTube, but we're not quite yet in a position where we can, mainly because I don't have enough YouTube subscribers. But far be it me to beg for people to click that subscribe button. That's my VA's job. But she's told me to say this on this podcast. Anyway. 
Speaking of my YouTube channel, my VA has been very committed lately and since the last pod I've had two long-form videos posted. They're both about parkrun, which yeah, obviously they're from last year, we know this. One of them is an overview of my local parkrun course and the other is kind of a vibe about how it feels to prepare for a parkrun in general. With specific regard to the former, note that as the Queen's parkrun is one of only three in the country beginning with Q, and the other two are in Belfast and the back of beyond somewhere in rural Hampshire, we do get a lot of parkrun tourists, so any content about it is well viewed and well researched. Unusually, what I did was more of an overview of the course rather than a, this is a vid of me running it, so I, you know, really hope I really get to explain and discuss what to look out for, what to be aware of, and also how to do it barefoot which I acknowledge is a niche market, but also equally a well-researched one. And my latter video proves that, although I think my VA wanted to market it more for the gender non-conforming audience than the Barefoot Crew 5K audience, in that I was wearing a skort. A skort, by the way, is what presents as shorts under a skirt. There's a chap on Instagram who has the brand of Skorted Man, and he's always seen running in a skort. I like the vibe, it's funky, others might disagree. But if gender is a social construct, then who cares? Anyway, there's a couple of other videos due to go live in the near future, but honestly, I don't quite know what they are. I'll just see what my magic, my VA can work with the videos that I've given her. A recent YouTube short video was of me doing a running warm-up exercise at high speed. And when I posted it to Instagram, I had a lot of people saying it was hilarious. And it was, mainly because of the captions my VA provided for it. Which implies that my VA is funnier than I am. Still haven't decided how I feel about that. Uh, this also means an idea she has for a short video is one in response to the hate comments that I get. Yes, I get hate comments. Mainly on my what not to say to an asexual content. I was kind of expecting that. I'm too removed from my own YouTube channel to really care about it that much. But V's idea is I do some kind of answer in response type video. But she has to write it, you know, channel her in a James Blunt, because, quite frankly, I'm not that witted. For the record, by the way, I've no idea if anyone comments on my podcast episodes, mainly because podcasts don't work the same way. Everywhere you listen to a podcast has its own way of rating and commenting, and there's no real easy, cheap and simple way of collating all of that information. What I mean by that is, while the most popular way of listening to my podcast seems to be through Apple Podcasts, and Spotify's the second most... In the last three months, there have been over 45 other different ways my podcast has been listened to, mainly via podcast apps. And each of those apps gives you the opportunity to rate and review. For the record, I listen to podcasts through an app called Castbox. I'm not going to trawl through all of them manually and look at every single episode just to see what people have said. That doesn't mean I don't appreciate it if you do leave a comment or anything like that, just that it might take me a while to read them. Anyway... In my last couple of episodes, I spoke at length about my adventures with interrailing, firstly about the trip I did back in 2000, and then a quick overview of where I went in the 2019 trip. What I want to do in this episode is talk a bit more in general about travelling Europe, mainly by train as a concept, although obviously a lot of what I'll talk about will be about my 2019 trip. My two interrail trips were separated by nearly two decades. In those intervening years, I travelled a lot on European trains on shorter trips, it has to be said that many of them in the early years were in France. I'd taken a lot of trains there, because that's what happens when you pretend you're cishet allo and date two women there. Not at the same time. Not every stereotype you may have heard about the French is true, although I'm not saying that one of them wouldn't have suggested it. 
Ooh la la. The other one absolutely would not have entertained it. Anyway, a couple of years after that first interrail trip, in spring 2002, and as a direct result of my relationship with law coming to a rather odd end, I took a mini train trip around Italy. I've alluded to it a few times in my previous episodes, not necessarily, always positively. It was probably the wrong place at the wrong time, not the last time that's happened, and I came back home a few days early due to a combination of social anxiety and bad vibes. But essentially, I bought a ticket that acted like a one-country interrail pass, which gave me travel on all Italian trains, only needing to pay a supplement on the high-speed ones. That trip as a whole would make an interesting introspective podcast, were it not for the fact that I kind of dropped most of the specifics out of my memory. I've also been across Europe by train to visit pen pals, including trains from Bratislava to Budapest and there to Belgrade, at the time of the capital of Yugoslavia, on an overnight train to visit a very recent pen pal there. And by recent, I mean three letters. I'm not normally that impulsive. Maybe I am. Hmm. It's one for my therapist. It felt like the right thing to do at the time anyway. And I was right. The pen pal in question has even contributed to some of my podcasts. So it wasn't a complete disaster. But Yugoslavia. Hmm. can see your eyebrows raised from here. This was uh, 1994, which, if you know your recent history, was at exactly the time that Yugoslavia was uh, in the process of unaliving, shall we say, and thus includes an awful lot of its citizens. I've never been to an active war zone, which may surprise a lot of you, V, but I could certainly see some of the admin from the train window, you know, mainly endless car box of UN lorries. I mean, that's unless you count Palestine, and I don't consider it to be an active war zone. I've never been to Gaza, despite what V thinks. I had the gun pointed at me by the UN soldier in Hebron in the West Bank. Hell world of difference. Opposite side of Israel for a start. It's like 80 kilometres between the two. There's entire countries you could fit between them. Several times. It's fine. Anyway, trains. Apart from those, yeah, I've um, taken a good few trains in passing. So, you know, trips to places like Belgium, Slovenia and, of course, Eastern Europe, as mentioned on a previous podcast. And in February, March 2018, at the height of a polar weather vortex known in the UK as the Beast from the East, I had a bimble around Central Europe, including an overnight train from Budapest to Warsaw. My experience of overnight trains in general is a wee bit odd. They're just a bit like standard long-distance European trains, with a long corridor on one side of the carriage and small segments coming off the other, maybe six seats to a section in two rows of three opposite each other. Each section has a lockable door and a curtain, and the only difference between the day and the night trips is the night trains tend to be slower. But also what i found is that few people take them. There are few reservations, and more often than not, even if they're reserved, no one actually turns up. So you end up being able to sprawl across all three seats and lie down, ensuring you get a better sleep than you expected. Certainly a better sleep than you would get on a megabus. The weather was quite cold, by the way, on that trip. It was minus 17 Celsius in Gdansk. I had to zip my fleece up. Anyway, as you know, in September 2019, I set off on that second interrail trip. Now, I'm conscious of the fact that I didn't give much background to my trip in my last episode. So aside from my liking of trains, and to hit a couple of low-key bucket list type concepts, there were two main reasons why I chose to do this. The first was because I figured this was an ideal time to go personally. I had the time, I had the money, and I had the opportunity. When would be the next time these three things would align so perfectly? Second reason, Brexit. I figured I ought to explore as much of the EU as I could before it became potentially more expensive and tricky to do so. Not just in terms of visas, but also in terms of things we take for granted, like physical crossings of EU borders, like mobile phone roaming agreements, 
like reciprocal health agreements. At the time, we didn't know what the status would be for Brits as effectively third-party citizens rather than EU citizens. As an aside, I'm not sure we still know. Didn't really have a plan or anything with regard to where I went, just that there were a number of routes that we'd decided against in 2000 and I'd not managed to visit since, including towns like Erfurt, Cluj-Napoca and Maastricht. I realised none of those three stand out as super important places for an interrailer to visit, but they had been places we rejected all those years ago and I always meant to, well, not return to, but you know what I mean. Rather than being zoned like in 2000, the interrail options were about duration, mostly X days in Y, but I went for a ticket that gave me unlimited travel for two months. I could have bought a similar one for, you know, one or three months. I figured that one month was too short, but three might have been overkill. As it happens, since I started the journey with a week-long trip with my friend Lix to Denmark and Sweden, before my interrail ticket started, with hindsight I'd probably been better off making a decision sooner and getting a three-month one. As an aside about terminology, I refer to it as interrail, but a Eurail pass also exists. Not 100% certain if there's any fundamental difference between them, other than who can buy the ticket, as interrail seems to be for those within the area covered by the ticket, while the Eurail pass is that bought by people out with the interrail coverage area. This coverage area, by the way, is generally summed up as Europe west of the former Soviet Union. This caused me slight hassle when I was planning my 2019 adventure, as much as I was planning it, in that it prevented me from easily changing trains briefly, when I say briefly I mean without admin, in Ukraine when I was trying to get from Hungary to Romania, and is why I've still never been to the Hungarian city of Debrecen, because obviously that's exactly the sort of backpacker hotspot that Interrail is crying out for. Someone who has travelled on a Eurail pass, but who doesn't know the difference either, is Amanda Kendall of the Thoughtful Travel podcast. Here, she talks a little about why she chose to buy the pass and bits about how she felt while she was travelling on it. So, my most recent URL pass trip was about six or seven years ago. Uh, again, with my son, who must have been six or seven at the time, I guess. So, I had planned some time in Germany and Switzerland to visit various relatives and friends and to go to a couple of places, um, go, including the German Legoland, actually, uh, because of my son. Anyway, so we need to do a fair few things across Germany and Switzerland, so across a fairly wide geography, but there was definitely no point in flying. Well, I thought there's no point in flying uh, and also, of course, the environmental factors. I'd rather take the train than fly. And I think my son was just the right age, so we could have hired a car, Had have done that in other similar trips, but I find it much easier at that age, or any age really, to keep him happy on a train. You know, you're not strapped in, you can move about more and I'm not driving, I can do stuff too. Uh, so trains seemed like the best thing to do. And then just because of the nature of how many kind of legs of travel we needed to do, and some of them quite long, URL, a Europass seemed to be the, the best option. Um, I had, uh, from memory, I think I had one that we could use for five trips within a certain period of time. Uh, I can't remember that maybe within two or three weeks or a month. I don't know the details anymore. It's lost to history. But uh, in the end, you know, I'd figured out that it was cheaper to do that than pay for all the individual tickets. And it also gave us like quite a lot of flexibility. And I don't know if I miscalculated or what. I can't quite remember anymore. But I know in the end, we I could threw in a day trip to France because I had this extra trip left. I think for some reason we'd used one less than planned. I can't remember the details, but it was kind of a bonus because my son had never been to France. And so we got to, um, you know, he, he's been there for a day so far. We'll be going back. But anyway, um, most of those URL trips 
were on Deutsche Bahn. Uh, I've never had any big problems at all with Deutsche Bahn, even though some people complain about them. Uh, and the longer journeys were just delightful. You know, it's just, I don't know, it's quiet and smooth and lovely to travel longer distances on a train. And uh, I remember on one leg, longish leg, we had, um, I think we might have had an upgrade or something because we were able to order food to be delivered to our seats, which was delightful, kind of like the best part of flying, but on a train. And the other thing I liked about, I mean, not Ural specifically, I suppose, but train travel in general is we'd arrive in the center of the town or city. And I think we were always within walking distance of our accommodation that way. You know, I obviously planned it as well. And that just made life really easy. So that was my Ural experience. I have travelled by train in Australia, but neither journeys really fall under the banner of this kind of train travel, more than this kind of adventure travel, really. I've taken the commuter train from Brisbane to Nambour on the Sunshine Coast, which is, I'll grant you, one heck of a long commuter service. It's 104 kilometres and takes two and a half hours, which is a little excessive, but I'm glad it's there. It makes it very convenient to visit my friends up there. Taking it, what, three times now, I think? The other journey I've taken was on the Indian Pacific train from Perth to Adelaide. That was about 41 hours and two overnights in a big chair, mostly going through what can best be described as nowhere. The Nullarbor Plain is an interesting concept, but not one I need to repeat. Too many flies. Anyway... As I say, for my 2019 interrail trip, I didn't have what anyone might call a planned route. And if you plotted it as I described it in my last episode, you may have raised an eyebrow at the inefficiency and complexity of it. I think I passed along the Cologne-Liège corridor about four times, for instance. Look, it's a very important route to access Northern Europe. Despite this, I still never ventured into Cologne Cathedral. Obviously, it was just never convenient. Because I usually had my backpack with me. And I didn't spend that long there on any of my train-changing stopovers. The longest single journey I did on the adventure was, I mean, I technically started it at Nice in the south of France, but I'd had enough time between train changes in Pisa to take pictures of Instagrammers and in Florence to find a useful craft beer bar and burger joint close to the railway station, which, despite being quite full, managed to find a place to slide both me and my backpack in. It was near the kitchen exit. I got bumped a bit. It was fine. But from there, it was only changing in railway stations, Bologna and Vienna, to Cluj-Napoca in Romania. And the Bologna change was only because the routing itself had been altered by the rail company. The Interrail app had said it was direct to Vienna. I left Nice mid-morning, I think. I left Bologna a shade after midnight, and I reached Cluj-Napoca sometime after 9pm. It's a slightly excessive journey, even by my standards. But to be honest, that's one of the great things about having an Interrail ticket or equivalent. And you're kind of not restricted about where to go, when to go or how to go. And this suits my travel style. As you know, I tend to do things at the last minute, as befits a raging ball of chaos. Like in that trip, I hadn't planned to go to Cluj-Napoca until I'd reached Vienna. But in any case, it'd be a bit weird to plan out in specific detail an entire two-month itinerary to the day. Or at least, I think it'd be a bit weird to do that. I'm sure, though, I have friends that would really like that to be a thing. Of course... I can see not many people venture too far the other way. I had a night in Liechtenstein and I hadn't planned onward travel, so I posted a poll to Twitter saying, should I go north to Germany or south to Italy tomorrow? Listener, when I woke up the next morning, the poll was exactly 50-50. That's what you get for crowdsourcing. I went north, for better weather mainly. As 
a stereotype about backpackers, that we are the sort of people to travel on a budget and therefore stay in the cheapest, slummiest accommodation we can find. And to be fair, if you're spending two months train hopping around Europe, unless you're some kind of rich, middle-class, middle-England teen on a gap yar before doing a business studies degree at LSE or a classics degree at Oxbridge, let's be real, you're going to need to, because Europe is not Southeast Asia. And not many people can afford to spend upwards of £35 a day on accommodation alone for two months solid. On his interrail trip back in 1985, Matthew Woodward from On The Rails certainly lived up to this stereotype. We slept absolutely anywhere and everywhere. In Athens, I stepped on the station platform. There was a whole community of interrailers sleeping on the station platform. In Corfu, I slept uh, in a hedge on a mini roundabout uh, near the ferry port. Uh, for a couple of nights. No one seemed to find us there. And in Istanbul, on the on a rooftop that you had to access via an outside ladder, um, which was rat infested. So that, that wasn't so good, but it was cheap. I am not quite that hardcore. Though yes, I've certainly spent nights in some very less than salubrious accommodation. The one in a small town on the Ghana-Burkina Faso border with the cockroach the size of my middle finger in the toilet room certainly qualifies, but the price of that was less than the price of the beer I'm currently drinking as I type this paragraph. I have overnighted outside Victoria Coach Station once, coming back from a concert at Wembley Stadium. Bon Jovi, in case you're interested. Not my choice. I was persuaded to go by an ex-girlfriend, and apparently I'm a people pleaser. Who knew? And of course, I've had many overnights in airports or on buses with two-hour stops between connections. Several times at Leeds, of all places. The most recent of this was coming back from Czechia last year, where I figured the cheapest way back home was to take a late coach from Prague to Vratslav, arriving like 4am, and then walking to the airport for a mid-morning flight. This had me lurking in the bus station in Vratslav for an hour, basically to kill time. Uh, there is nothing to do in Vratslav bus station at 4am. They even closed the toilets which was most annoying as my digestive system wasn't doing well that journey. You might well ask, why didn't you get public transport to the airport? And firstly, that would have meant waiting longer and in both the bus station and the airport, because the public transport didn't actually start until about six or something. And secondly, my contactless debit card had lost the contactless ability at this point, and I wasn't going to draw out any slotty, I wasn't going to need other than the bus ticket. Normal people would have taken the hit on flying back from Prague. I'm just particular. Uh, but yes, when I travel, I do tend to stay in as budget accommodation as I can get away with, with limits. I like there to be a bed, four walls, a roof, and no rats. Call me a snob if you like, I can take it. So obviously this largely means hostels, and as someone slightly older than the average backpacker, which we'll come on to later, this makes me feel a little awkward. Also, I'll be doing a, I would say, Twitter spaces on the topic of backpacking as an older person, but at the time of typing up this podcast... Who knows? No idea if we'll be on Twitter Spaces, YouTube Live, Facebook Live. Who knows? It'll be around somewhere. Yes. So I, I, I have stayed in mostly in hostels when doing backpacker trips. My interrail trip in 2019 especially was mostly hostels. I am prepared to pay a couple of quid more for a smaller dorm. And in many places, this actually served me quite well, as I ended up in a four-bed dorm on my own for my entire stay a couple of times. This happened in Leipzig and Andorra, for sure. I think I also had that pleasure in Ljubljana. In Nice, I shared an eight-bed dorm with only one other person, and that for only one night. While in Olomouc, I had a full four-bed dorm, but the room itself was about as big as my current flat in Glasgow. So I'm kind of prepared to accept that. 
In a couple of places on my interrail trip, I did splash out on a private room in a hostel, notably in Alicante, because I'd just taken an overnight bus from Toulouse to Madrid, and I knew I was going to be so very tired. And indeed, I was. I had a doze at three o'clock in the afternoon. But in a few places, like Trier and Banska Stiefnitsa, uh, there may be others, I actually booked into a hotel. I think this was purely for practical reasons, because I was only staying for one night, and it was easier, or at least relatively cheaper, in those places to do that than to book a hostel. There may not even have been any hostels in Banska Stiefnitsa. It's not a very big town. I don't know. I don't remember my thought process. In previous trips, I've done that too. In my Central Europe cold weather adventure in March 2018, I booked a private room in a hostel in Wroclaw in Poland because I'd just done an overnight Flixbus from Gdansk and I was only staying one night before an early morning flight back home, so I knew that my sleep that day would be very off-kilter. It doesn't happen often, though, because private rooms in hostels tend to be quite overpriced compared with budget hotel rooms. It does, though, depend on the location and also how far in advance you book. So in the UK, we have a couple of decent budget hotel chains. Prices can vary enormously, but one of them is the Premier Inn, and it's so noted for the quality of its bedding that you can actually buy their mattresses. Genuinely. So you too can have as good a night of sleep as you would in a Premier Inn. Theoretically. Now, sometimes I do alternatives, depending on where I am. Availability, cost, and how long I'm spending in a place. The longer I am going to be somewhere, the less likely I am to hostel it, oddly. You'd have thought it would have been the other way around. But it makes more sense to feel like I can spread out more if I'm going to be stable for a few days. Stable. So often I'll look at Airbnb. And by Airbnb, I mean rooms in houses and not exclusive use. Glorified couch surfing, basically. Staying in the spare rooms of people who already live there. There's a lot of hate towards Airbnb, but this way I think shouldn't be vilified in quite the same way. People do not buy house in towns purely to live in them with the hope of obtaining income from occasional passing barefoot backpackers. You need to take your shoes off when inside, had said the lovely lady I stayed with in Rennes in her standard introductions. I wore socks specifically so as not to irk her even more than being a non-francophone in a flat with a monolingual francophone. I can get by in French for the most part. Laura may disagree, but then Laura wasn't on this trip. The first accommodation I had on the entire trip was also a French spare room Airbnb, and true to form, I booked it on my way there. I was on a train to Strasbourg, and I figured I probably ought to book some accommodation there. Unfortunately, I had an immediate response from a couple who, uh, A, were very new to the concept of Airbnb, and B, turns out, already followed me on Twitter, which is... interesting. But hey-ho. Anyway, I spent three nights there, and while it was only a small room, it served my needs perfectly well. I also had a spare room type Airbnb in my one night in Calais, a city that, while interesting, probably only needs one night. My host, another monolingual francophone, in an unassuming terraced house close to the lesser known of Calais' three railway stations, Les Fontinettes, did at least unusually keep to the second B of Airbnb. It was a stupendously huge French-style breakfast with enough bread, cheese and charcuterie to see me through the rest of the day. Honestly, it could probably have seen me through the rest of the week. Now, there may have been a handful of times where I did use an Airbnb for exclusive use. Examples of this on my interrail trip were Brussels and Toulon, near the start, and Bratislava, Kozice and Budapest at the end. This was because at these points I was travelling with a friend rather than on my own, and Licks has more expensive and exclusive tastes than I do. We'll come back to them later. The last accommodation I'm going to highlight was in the German city of Augsburg. 
It's not a place I knew a lot about, other than I'd come across their football team in one of my sessions on the Championship Manager computer game back in days of lore. But I was in Leipzig plotting my next port of call, and one of my travel Twitter friends sent me a message saying, hey, do you have any plans to pass through Augsburg because it'd be cool to meet up? My response was something along the lines of, I had no plans, so yes, I can do that. It was nice to meet someone I'd only previously known through online words, and she took me on a whistle-stop trip around a town I'd never previously considered visiting. Remember, one advantage of something like an interrail trick is you have the flexibility to go anywhere, anywhere, so why not take advantage of that and visit somewhere less raved about, simply because you can. Anyway, I stayed in the spare room of her flat, not for very long as we stayed out later than I'd anticipated, drinking Radler on the balcony of one of her friend's flats, and I wanted to catch an early train to Munich so I could get to Bologna in good time, but it's not like I couldn't catch up on sleep at some point in the future. As an aside, she's also one of the many people I know online who have never seen me wear footwear, and she got me to pose in front of a long-closed cafe called Barefoot, just for an impromptu photo shoot. I have cool friends. I could talk about the Airbnb I stayed in with Lix in the spare room of a dating couple in Malmo in Sweden, who had a passion for conspiracy theories and denied the entire existence of NBs. But that was the week before my interrail pass started, and I have my limits. And anyway, spoiler alert, Lix will mention it later. <laughs> The thing with travelling from place to place to place at speed is that you can't buy in a load of stuff and cook for yourself that often. Partly because you might be staying in a hostel and not have the space. But mainly because if you're only staying somewhere for three nights, it's not really convenient to buy in a 500 gram bag of pasta, for example. Or, you know, a whole chicken to cook and eat. That means it's highly likely you'll be eating out a lot. Since, as you know, I'm quite partial to the odd pint of beer or two, or three, or five. V occasionally worries about my alcohol consumption, but Laura says it's fine, so I'm choosing to believe her than V. All I will say is that I was drinking an average of three pints a night on my interrail trip, and not long after I got back, I ran low on money, moved to Sheffield, and basically stopped drinking beer completely. Then I got a headache that lasted for four days. Remember, listeners, I am not a role model. But anyway, since you know I'm partial to the regular beer, it means I have a tendency to eat at pubs, or pub-like places. This was especially true on my trips across the USA in November 2017 and April 2018, where I often have lunch and a couple of pints in a place having just arrived in town from a Greyhound bus. This, of course, means I try to have local beer, which wasn't a problem in the USA. As you know, if you heard a podcast episode from a couple of years ago, I did all about beer. I'd walk into a bar and they'd have, you know, even up to 100 beers, all sourced from within a couple of counties. I didn't always have this look on my trips across Europe. In Rennes, for instance, I found a craft beer bar that was selling beer from Italy, Greece and the UK. Northern Monk Brewery gets everywhere. A second pub the next night sourced a lot more local. It was also a lot busier. Don't think the two were connected. But you never know. In Andorra, I bought local beer from a supermarket and drank it back at the hostel. Now, one of the local breweries there has a brand. They're called Marijuana. Yes, correct. Their beer is brewed with hemp seeds, and this is their USP. As an aside, I found the smell of hops very similar to the smell of cannabis. Be wary if I ever do homebrew and offer you some. But in this particular case, I'd say, unfortunately, they seem to have concentrated too much on what makes them different, and not enough on their beers, 
I had three, and honestly, they were all quite a bit bland. I do try to have a beer from every country I visit. I missed out on Liechtenstein, though, as the... While the hostel I was in sold them, I wouldn't have had time to drink it before I had to head out, and I knew by the time I returned, the bar section of the hostel, which was basically the reception desk, would have been closed. So possibly a reason to go back to Liechtenstein, if ever a reason was needed. Obviously some places I'm going to make a beeline for. I made a point of overnighting in Nuremberg, not just because it's an interesting historical and quite picturesque city, though I was only there for one day and the sites of both the Nuremberg rallies and the Nuremberg trials would have required too much of my daylight time to venture to, and I was only there one night because of course I was, but also because it has a brewery named for the local monks who brewed the beer here. And of course, if there's a brewery and associated brew tap called Barfusser, I'm going to make a point of drinking there. I don't just drink beer though. In Olomutz, for instance, the hostel I was in served a variety of local spirits, including a couple that tasted like the forests they sourced the ingredients from. And there was a small amount of wine drunk on my interrail adventure. I'm not so knowledgeable about wine, so I leave discussion of that to the experts. Or at least those who know what they're doing. Or those who know what they like, in the case of licks. We'll come on to that in a minute as well. With regard to food, I'd love to say that I ate locally and tried the regional cuisine, but let's be honest, I barely remember food. As I say, I eat in pubs a lot. There's not a lot you can do with a burger to make it more... local. And I can't tell the difference between beef and ostrich anyway. I had a crocodile burger in the Australian bar in Birmingham once. You can make your own jokes. I do recall having locally styled food in both Banska Stiavnica in Slovakia and Cluj-Napoca in Romania, the latter in a restaurant specifically recommended by the lady who ran the free walking tour I went on. But all I remember is that it being a slab of meat, beef probably, in a sauce. This is, as you may have realised, another reason why I'm not a travel blogger. What I do recall were a couple of interesting restaurants and bars where I ate and drank en route. This includes a place in Brussels, which was really full, but where they slid us, because I was travelling with Licks at the time, at a small table next to the toilets, but the ambience and vibe of the place was awesome, and if memory serves, the food was divine. Also in Brussels with Licks, we went to a traditional 1920s jazz bar, exactly the sort of place that I'd be really interested to visit, but not on my own. We had fancy cocktails on the mezzanine level, while a genuine jazz band played on the stage below us. And again with Licks, because regardless of anything else, they definitely know how to have a notable evening. We went to a cocktail bar in Budapest where the menu was basic. You tell us what you like and we'll custom make something to your needs. It was a tad expensive and we only had one each, but it was definitely worth going to. Then we went to a craft beer bar where you served yourself with beer taps on the walls and the cost was calculated to the milliliter. Which is a fascinating way to have an awful lot of very small amounts of beer. Licks themselves give more information here, which I'd forgotten. As I say, one of us is not a travel blogger. One, that one beer that was black, 10% alcohol by volume, and tasted vaguely like chocolate baileys. It was delicious, and I think it was in Copenhagen, but if it wasn't, the pub that we went to in Copenhagen was also great. Two, um, violet liqueur in Bratislava at the Baudelaire, which is a really cute, cool cafe that had a lot of drinks like... Um, inspired by authors so I, I love that obviously because i'm a i'm a bit of a snob and that was great <laughs> three all the herbal liqueurs in slovakia and hungary what an embarrassment of riches they have i love herbs and things in in liquor and it just it was just great for me that was great i mean i can't remember any of the names but it was great four happy hour espresso martinis in oxford just 
then uh, five uh, customized uh, espresso martini in uh, I believe it was Budapest. Um, if you can tell, I really like espresso martinis. Six, um, Black Russian, Brussels. Not so much because of the drink, which was pretty mid, but because piano bars are like my dream hangout spot and it was a weekday and it was mostly like the, uh, the entire top floor was mostly empty and it was just the best, the best place to hang out, honestly. Um, L'Archiduc, I hope you're still in business, baby. In Vienna, where we were only for half well, a day, most of a day, I had a bullet bourbon for the first time, which was incredible. But what really stands out here is the Bloody Mary that they made me. It was bananas. It was like breakfast for dinner. I think it had bacon on it. It was, it was just so good and it just went down so well. And now we're gonna move on to food. So first of all, and that is, this is kind of like the best thing that we had the whole trip. Uh, prosciutto wrapped lamb with a wild mushroom sauce. Um, this was in Kostice and it was God, be still my beating heart. Fuck me, what a meal. It was just wonderful. Uh, bibimbap at a really small Panasian restaurant in Oxford. I had never had bibimbap before and I fell head over heels in love immediately. It was ridiculously good. Number three uh, was the seafood platter that we had in Marseille. I, I love, love seafood and it's so expensive and I was just thrilled to have an entire platter. It was so good. It was just... I think it was the seasoning was mainly like garlic and basil and it was incredible. We had some really good meals in Slovakia and Hungary. They were very hearty meals. I had venison at a very popular restaurant in uh, in Bratislava. That was really good. And the restaurants that we went to in, in Budapest really surprised me just by being very pretty, very, very nice. Just very good food. No, I, I'm not really into potato pancakes. That's not really my thing. <laughs> As mentioned earlier, though, my style of travel, and indeed interrailing as a concept, don't lend themselves well to self-cooking. Unless you're purposely going to be settling in a base and taking train trips out for the day to places around, which I guess is easy to do in Europe with its decent enough train service and short distances, but it's not ideal. On my trips, if I've wanted to cook on site and I know I'm going to be there for, you know, only a couple of days, I tend to buy do-it-yourself sandwiches with snack food, you know, a baguette or two, small pack of cheese, sausage or something, some chocolate, that sort of thing. Or if I want something hot, it's going to be something like dried noodles, whatever the local supermarket's version of pot noodle is, or small packets of couscous, something easily carried or suitable for just one person one time. I eat when I travel, similarly to how I eat when I hike, just with more beer, apparently. Because no one wants to be up all night in a tent needing to wee every two hours, then having to hike through the grasslands while feeling you could fall asleep at every step. That way, danger lies, mainly in the form of tripping over pebbles or boulders. Nothing like that happened on my trips around Europe, but things can go wrong. And indeed, things going wrong, or at least not going to plan, for a given definition of plan, is something that's... You know, it's obviously going to happen, especially if you're travelling for a couple of months. I had trouble getting out of Toulouse heading east because at the time the main, only, railway line had had a... I mean, if I remember correctly, it was a flood causing a landslide blocking the trap between Bézier and Montpellier and the rail replacement bus services were far less frequent. I eventually got to my destination that day, Nice, about four hours later than I'd planned, having caught a Flixbus most of the way. At least they were options. 
At the start of November, I was visiting Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy and got back to this small railway station nearby, only to find, after about 15 minutes of waiting after the train had been due to arrive, that it had all been cancelled for unspecified reasons. I only found out by looking at the rail app. There was nothing on the station at all. I'd already watched one coach back to Rennes depart because I was waiting for the railway shuttle, and it turns out, after conversations in broken French at the nearby bakery, the only way back to Rennes from here was to return to Mont Saint-Michel and wait a further hour for the next one. This involved hitchhiking, or at least accidental hitchhiking. I was walking the few kilometres back up the road and a group of students stopped for me and picked me up. If you listened to my last episode, you'll remember that wasn't the only time I hitchhiked, but the descent out of Andorra was also... I mean, that wasn't an example of something that had gone wrong. That was just something that was humongously convenient. But again, it was the same principle. I was walking and someone decided to pick me up. I wasn't complaining, but I didn't do it on purpose. As an aside, I did accidentally miss a rail strike in Italy by one day. The day I left Bologna for Slovenia, all the display boards in the station were warning passengers about the next day's travel being disrupted. Incidentally, the other bus trip I did was more because of convenience. It was an overnight journey from Toulouse to Madrid, and that because there are no trains to do that journey. Regular service stops in a small village in the Pyrenees at the bottom of the mountainous road to Andorra. To do the train by journey involves a huge detour either by Bordeaux and Hendaya or Perpignan and Barcelona, both of which did last time. Thank you very much. Things going wrong isn't just limited to actual travel. For example, I should probably go back to Olomouc one day. It was a town that Travel Twitter suggested was a nice place to go. Indeed, it very much is. It's one of those typical Central European city centres with cobbled streets, old buildings and incredibly ornate fountains. In the central square of the city is a large astronomical clock, second only to the famous one in Prague. I didn't get to see it, though, as it was all covered in scaffolding. The other minor issue I had was in Liechtenstein, of all places. For some reason, I had trouble with my electrics. I don't know if that was something about the country or about the hostel I was in, but none of my plugs or adapters fitted into any of the wall sockets. I ended up running on extreme battery mode until I could get charged up on the train back through Switzerland the next day. It wasn't something I was expecting to be a problem anywhere in Europe, to be honest. Now, as I say, I, I travelled with my friend Lix for part of the journey in 2019, and they made a list of all the things that they felt went wrong when they were travelling with me. None of them were my fault. Honest. Now I wanted me to talk a little bit about like things that went wrong on our trip and left to my own devices, I go off on like massive tangents. So I'm going to do a bit of a top five. So first off, I have to give an honorary mention to their uncle's cat who disliked me on site for some reason. You kept poking him in the nose. Number five is the time we flew from Copenhagen into Luton, which would be enough. But they also managed to lose Nail's backpack for like three days. As an aside, I'd forgotten that had happened until Lix mentioned it for this pod. As it's not strictly relevant to the pod topic, I'll not go into details, but it was inconvenient and it had knock-on effects. Hmm, Luton Airport. Number four is redacted and I don't think they would agree, but um, it involves somebody I will mention. Number three, my search for a beach where we could do like a shoot in my swimsuit was a bust. I kept trying to go to places that were hard to access and the weather never cooperated. The worst instance of this was the time we went to Portishead and the beach was so rocky that I couldn't walk on it. And it took me like half an hour to get off it. It was absolutely awful. Number two, when we were going from Brussels to Nice, Nell used the Eurail or whatever it was that they were using. 
and I booked a relatively cheap flight out of an airport that wasn't the main airport in Brussels. Day off, I couldn't get to it. There was supposed to be a bus to take me there, but it wasn't showing. And I kept like looking up online and I couldn't figure out any other way to get to the airport. So I had to book a different flight from the normal airport. And it was just very stressful. Number one, drum roll please. The Airbnb in Malmo that advertised as two rooms, but in fact one of those rooms was occupied by the couple that lived there. One of whom was a raging transphobe. That was um, not great. No, I wasn't out as non-binary at the time, but I was. And while I have no interest in top surgery, hearing someone talk about like so-called mutilation in the same 10 minutes they talked about how cool it would be to upload our brains into robots was really quite something put me in a state of quiet rage for quite a bit after we even left. Luckily, he also thought I was incredibly annoying and posh for daring to ask for some storage space. So, as Shane my dad would put it, I did meet some of the most insufferable people, but they also met me. In hindsight, being at a train station with no way to get to the airport and no data on my phone because I'm irresponsible and insist on traveling without a phone number, that was technically worse than the transfer Airbnb by all. I fucking hated that guy, and to top it all off, Sweden doesn't sell hard liquor or even wine in supermarkets. Zero out of zero. Pretty place. You'll notice a couple of those involve aeroplanes, and a couple of others involve other people. There's advantages to backpacking on trains on your own and staying in hostels, that's for sure. Stereotypically, backpackers and interrailers are somewhat younger than me. Indeed, typically, they're of the age I was when I did my first interrail trip 23 years ago. Like, there are people I chat to online in the travel Twitter sphere who were not born when I did my first interrail adventure in 2000. Obviously, you know how that makes me feel. But as you know, I'm absolutely not the sort of person who'll say, ah, but travel was better in my day. No, it wasn't. Stop confusing nostalgia with efficiency. It'd be awesome to travel around Europe today as a 24-year-old. Well, I mean, it'd be awesome to travel in Europe today as a 24-year-old European, but we'll let that bit of slide for the moment, as that otherwise would open out into a whole world of admin and racist border policies. Yes, Dave and Karen in Kirkby and Ashfield, it is trickier, slower and more expensive to visit Europe now than it used to be. Now you know how it feels to be othered, just like you and the other 70% of people in your town felt about everyone else who wasn't white British when you voted Brexit in 2016. You either believe in free movement or you run the risk of having your dogma used against you. But this is not a soapbox and I don't want splinters. So yes, when people think of Interrail, they will automatically think of young people who have the time and ability to travel for ages without a job or real life getting in the way. I'm not sure about this, since it relies on a certain amount of unearned wealth, but I suspect that is a topic for a future podcast. All I will say is, working for an international corporation for 20 years gives you a good financial setting for a trip exactly like this, and I made sure I took full advantage of it. Now, as you already know, I had a tendency to stay in hostels. I talked about a couple of the ones I stayed in earlier. This is because they're cheap, and Europe is not, and even I have my limits. But, you might ask, how would a 44-year-old cope surrounded by young people? The answer is, surprisingly well. There's a number of aspects here, which me and my friend V will, on whatever we decide to do instead of Twitter spaces, will talk about, and it'll form the basis of a next sort of podcast episode. But, we don't know when that will be, as I say. But anyway, we're going to be talking about this subject and in much more detail. But generally, one aspect of it is, you know, 
when you get middle-aged, surely you don't want to be sleeping on cheap bedding. Uh, another aspect that V brought up is, don't you feel awkward surrounded by youngsters? Wouldn't you prefer a place to yourself? The answer to the second point is objectively yes, but my social anxiety prevented me from staying in hostels unless absolutely necessary when I was younger. My abortive adventure to Italy in 2002 had involved two of them, and it can't be denied that that may have been a part of why I felt uncomfortable. But needs must. And also I'd like to say the average hostel has improved in quality over the last 20 years. And to be fair, the other point about the intervening time is that it's much easier to get a feel for how good hostels are. Sites like Hostel World have sprung up, giving not just an easy way to book them, but also an easy way you can see information about them. Sites like Hostel Geeks are you to assess which hostels are suitable for your needs and which hostels to avoid if you're not a party animal. This makes it very easy to find somewhere exactly suitable to your needs. And even at the age of 24, I wasn't the sort of person to play beer pong. It might surprise you to know that I have played beer pong. It was in a hostel in San Francisco in late 2017, but I was feeling very sociable and uber chill on that adventure. The other thing to note about hostels is that they're no longer rough and ready cheap places to crash for a night and move on. Some of them can be quite boutique. And in any case, they mostly have decent beds. And they all know if they don't, they'll get slated for it on the likes of Hostel World. You can't cut corners these days with your facilities or your product because people will shout. And while I, personally, tend to travel beyond the brochure, on something like an interrail trip, the likelihood is many of your nights will be spent in places where there are a lot of hostels. And if you're only rated 7.9 on Hostel World and there's 14 hostels rated higher, you ain't going to be in business long. But some hostels have an age limit. This is fine. I understand that perfectly. Why the fuck would anyone want to share a dorm room with someone old enough to be their parent? But the beauty of hostels is, A, there are often so many hostels anyway, this isn't a problem for me, but also, B, the likelihood is, in any hostel with an upper age limit, it's not likely to be the sort of hostel I'd want to stay in anyway, as it's likely it'll focus on the kind of party atmosphere I was trying to avoid. At no point in my interrail trip in 2019 did I find any problems with the hostels I was in because of my age. I think, in part, this was because... I did use sites like Hostel World and Hostel Geeks to research my accommodation well enough to rule out any hostel with that vibe. It's not just about where to stay, though. There's other things to bear in mind. As someone double the age of many a backpacker, questions have to be asked about, do I have the energy to do this? Can my body physically cope with long journeys and lack of sleep? The answer appears to be yes. Though I don't know how much of this is because my body is used to all manner of strange things being done to it. Not like that. Well, yes, sometimes quite like that. But in this particular case, I meant things like I used to often pull all-nighters and function on little sleep for no reason other than I was busy chatting to people online or writing stories or playing computer games and I didn't feel tired. I'm not sure I could do it as easily now, certainly not at will. But it's interesting to note that I have and do, and it's usually because of travel these days. I rarely sleep on anything other than a train and even then flat beds. So flying to New Zealand was an interesting experience fueled mainly by Emirates' in-seat entertainment system. While a trip last year to London to visit Laura involved an overnight megabus, having been up all the previous day, and then 30,000 steps walking around London before getting to the hotel in that well-connected and close suburb of, checks notes, Harrow, the bus trip being powered by podcasts and the Londonism fueled less by an adrenaline rush of needing to stay awake and more by a weird sense of bowel control. The only downside of all-night travel I've found as an older person is that it does very little good to your digestive system, and it meant that I didn't fart for five or six hours. You don't need to know that. 
I suppose people don't expect older people to be doing this kind of travel too because it's less likely people like me have the time to. And that's very true. We're all supposed to be married, two kids, jobs in middle management in an office or something like that. Obviously, for my longer trips, I'm between jobs. But even when I'm being paid to do something more traditional than a podcast, I tend to take longer holidays from work and really wouldn't know what to do with the occasional day off. I say more traditional, but my skill set is one that can be done remotely. And even when travelling, I'm a data analyst serving either remote offices or websites. But I've never done the whole nomad life thing. Mainly, it must be said for neurodiversity reasons. I doubt my brain could focus, in all honesty. But I know others are better at that than I am. So there's no reason why these days that can't stop there being more interrailing old people. I have no word to say on the married with children thing. Obviously, as you've already heard, Amanda did Eurail with her young son. And I've certainly known other people to do similar, like my friend B, who road tripped the USA with two single-aged children for a couple of months, I think. Travel with the Family has been a podcast episode on my radar to do for a few years now, and I haven't because, obviously, I don't have a lot of input to make on that side. But we'll see. I don't mean we'll see in the sense that I'll try and create one. I mean we'll see in the sense that I'll try and build a podcast around it. As for being surrounded by youngsters, well, weirdly, it never really feels that way. But I guess I just tend to eat and drink out. And, as I say... Plus, even in Europe, I have a tendency to not go to the same places everybody else does. I don't just mean there are fewer backpackers in Cluj Napoca than in Barcelona, but also I'll have a tendency to pick out the less backpackery hostels and places to eat and go anyway. Mind you, I very much have a great aunt aura. That sort of, now kids, Nell's visiting today and they're a bit strange. Don't encourage them. And then I turn up to my friends' houses bearing boxes of candy, video of random streets of Bangladesh and stories of adventure that make my friends' eyes roll. I am not a role model, is a disclaimer. And to anyone that says, surely you should be saving up for retirement. Which of course leads us nicely onto budgeting. I'd love to say I had a budget for every time I go travelling, regardless of the method and location of my travels. However, as I'm sure you're all aware by now, this is not the case. I do have my limits and I do have a sense of what's expensive, especially with regard to accommodation. And I'm also aware that my definition of expensive is somewhat different to that of many of the people I know on Travel Twitter. It irks me to spend more than about £60 a night on a hotel. It irks me to pay more than £30 a night on a dorm bed. That I even stay in dorms in hostels is in some way testament to my definitions of budgeting. And yet I spend over £8 on cans of craft beer. Guess it's all about priorities. Obviously the longer the journey and the routing you take will affect your budget. Spending two months on an interrail trip that includes a few nights in places like Switzerland is obviously very different from travelling around Central Europe for a week making use of overnight trains and buses. Speaking of Switzerland... I stayed a couple of nights in a hostel in a small town just north of Geneva. In that hostel was a leaflet with an overview on how much trains cost in the country. I calculated that three trips across the country, say from Geneva to St Gallen and back, would actually pay for my interrail ticket. My entire two-month pan-European interrail ticket. So, if I have only one piece of advice for anyone looking to buy an interrail ticket but is irking at the cost, make sure you travel through Switzerland a couple of times then you don't need to worry about the cost-effectiveness of exploring Romania or wherever. I think, ultimately, I travel till my running runs out, and I don't worry about the intervening times. Anxiety makes me worry this is going to happen all the time. Impulsivity makes me not care, and future me can worry about that. 
Don't do this. It only leads to chaos. But at least I've never backpacked. That can get in the sea right there. On the very rare occasions I've run out of money, I've immediately come home. And I don't set out on a trip knowing that's going to happen, because that would be horrendously bad practice. This is why I've never been to Norway. I wouldn't enjoy having to penny-pinch to that level. I kind of vaguely know what's an acceptable amount for me to spend on a trip at any given point, and while I don't budget overall, I kind of know if something I'm doing feels like a splurge or not. And I'm more inclined to not do the thing, even if I can afford it, just in case. Honestly, I probably need to travel with someone on these trips, someone who'd look after that side of things for me. So, you already know that part of my 2019 trip was travelling with my friend Lix, and they were the far more expensive parts, including an Airbnb and someone's ceiling room that touched on £100 a night. It was a lovely room though, very airy, even if I couldn't quite stand up in part of the bathroom. A couple of bars and restaurants that were not cheap, and the wine they made by each night in Toulon was way off the budget that I didn't have. Still, I know for next time. Lix gives their viewpoint about the trip here, and they're fully aware of that aspect of our travels together. So, travelling with Nell was easy. Um, really the most laid-back travel that I've ever done. Cons. They don't make plans often, and I try to buy tickets for planes and trains as early as possible to get good prices. A couple of times, because of their aversion to reservations, we couldn't find anything anywhere interesting to eat that wasn't full. But I will own up to my personal way of upping the cost of our trip. I can't handle hostels, there's too many people. I need a place to go back to that isn't crowded, and preferably with a couch and perhaps even a kitchen. Our Airbnb in Kosice was fucking awesome. It was so big, but of course that was a small town. On top of that, one of my highest priorities when I travel is food, and I dragged Nell to quite a few restaurants that they never would have gone on their own, and a couple of cute cocktail bars. Of course, they dragged me to a lot of pubs. Like, they dragged me on a bit of a beer tour of Europe, so they can't complain too much. There were also many excellent things where we met in the middle. They love walking, hiking and things, and I have low Norland capacity to speak of, but we'll happily walk five hours around a city just to get to know it. So doing that in many places was wonderful. The, the standout for me was Oxford, because it's possibly my favorite city in the world, and I hadn't been since 2008. So, But I, I got to grab Nell's hand and basically skip through town, hitting all the streets I still remember, and it was it was just lovely. Apparently, they're happy to travel with me again. I suspect if and when we do, it'll be a very different kind of trip. Probably one that's going to be more interesting for those listening via Full Swap Radio. Otherly, I have done general backpacking trips with other people before, as you know, including the road trip around Ireland with Anne Law, subject of a previous podcast, and someone who's also not a cheap companion, and several adventures I've had with Laura, including France, budget hotels, and Philippines, which is a relatively budget-minded country anyway, so that was all right. It's still quite alien to the way I travel in general, but I am getting more used to it. Plus, it's nice to have someone organise things like budgets, as I hinted at. Here I'm thinking specifically of Anne Law, who kept and detailed every receipt to make sure we were paying the same overall cost. Though note we didn't have a budget for that trip, it was more making sure that neither of us was overspending on the rental car, her, or the hotels, me. I will concede also that Laura does exactly the same thing when I travel with her, but I'm less focused on that. One day, I might just get used to it. Well, that just about wraps up, not just this episode, but also discussions about rail journeys across Europe. 
Just as with my London pods, one idea for one episode has turned into three. Anyway, join me next time for a more usual one-off insight into a travel beyond, beyond the bridge. Until then, you can travel with me if you like. It'll certainly be an interesting experience. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.